right, all right. Come on in, find a seat. Um, as you're sitting down, you'll probably see this on your seat. Uh, hopefully, somebody didn't move it. And uh, this is a Easter invite, and uh, there's some seats that don't have anybody in them, and we'd love to fill them with people that you invite to our Easter service. And so, please take these, use these. We'll be putting them out. We ordered like I don't know, like 700 of these. And uh, we were like, wouldn't it be awesome if all 700 people showed up and we had to like figure out where to have people stand and all of that? It would be amazing. It'd be crazy. We'd get shut down by the city. And, uh, and hey, we've, it's never been done here, so let's try it, you know? And uh, so please grab one of these. Also, out in the lobby, you probably are starting to see some changes. Thanks, buddy. And uh, appreciate that. Everybody give Aaron a hand. He did a great job this morning. And... Um, This week is a big week. We're going to start hosting the Youth Shenandoah Youth Art Gallery. And so we've been making preparations out there. Van, if you would stand up and wave. That's Van right there. Everybody give him a hand. He's going to be out in the lobby after the service. We have a sign-up genius, but this week we were able to make some uh, changes with uh, the Shenandoah Arts Festival. They asked us to make some changes, and so it actually eliminated some spots that we needed. And so basically every evening in the month of March, except for the first Saturday, um, the, the fifth, I guess it is, or fourth, the fourth is the grand opening. Uh, the fourth is the grand opening, and uh, it's going to be uh, from two to five, and then the rest of the times is four to six p.m. So it actually makes it a little bit easier for us to have, fill those volunteer slots, but please go by the marker board today before you leave, see Van, and Van will help get you signed up for that, and uh, we'll be sending some emails letting you know if you sign up about the door code. Can we put our hands together? We've got a new back door. <laughs> Excited about that. So those are just a couple of things I want to bring your attention to. If you would, turn to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, and we are in week 3 of our series entitled Rebuild and Renovate. Rebuild and Renovate. God is certainly rebuilding and renovating a city, the city of God, after the people of God are being brought back out of exile. So the book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple, and the book of Nehemiah is about the rebuild of the city of God. And originally when these two books were written, I found this out this week, they were actually just one book. It was just one book, but over time as the canon has been established, we have two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, but it's one story. They're meant to be studied together, and I love that. So we see in the book of Ezra the rebuild of the temple by a priest named Ezra, who will be introduced to in a couple of weeks. And then Nehemiah rebuilds the city of God like an engineer. So we've got the heart of God and we've got the hands. We see these two things being brought together. Both books help us how, see how to deal not only with uh, the rebuild of our hearts and our souls and our minds, but also how to deal with setbacks. That's what we see today in chapter four, the setback. Anybody ever experienced a setback? Can you raise your hands today? You felt like you've experienced a setback? Maybe it felt like one step forward, two steps back. You're like, no, it actually felt like one step forward, forward 37 steps back, right? 
If you're a parent and you got little kids, that's what it feels like, right? If you're potty training, it feels like one step forward, 37 steps backwards. And that's what we see here today. And I'm hoping that it'll also be an encouragement to us because all of us are going to experience setbacks in our lives. We're all going to experience that feeling that we've take, taken one step forward and two steps back. So let's go to Ezra chapter 4 and let's read this chapter together. It says this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Anybody here this morning ever felt discouraged? Maybe you felt like everyone was against you and the result of that is you had fear. You were, you were afraid if it was going to work out. And maybe you even felt like, man, are they bribing people to like be mean to me? And then you begin to feel frustrated. This is what the people of God are experiencing. Now, verse 6 through 26, or sorry, verse 6 through 22 uh, are like a a parenthetical letter. It's, it's, a, it's a, a picture of a letter that we actually don't have in Scripture, and so it tells us a summary statement of what was going on. And so we see this reign of this foreign king. It says this in verse 6, "...in the beginning of his reign they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam..." and Midridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes. So there's these group of people, and they're writing letters to Artaxerxes. And they're trying to get him to understand that the people of God and where they're at and where they're located are trying to rise up and build. Go down to verse 12. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. So this whole section is not written in chronological order. 
So the people of God have been brought out of exile, brought back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple. So the first three chapters have been more chronological. Now this fourth chapter, particularly this section, is a summary of all the things that are happening in this time between Ezra and Nehemiah. But essentially what they're saying in this letter is, hey, if this city, remember, it was not led by Israel when it was rebellious. It was actually led by a Babylonian ruler who tried to overthrow his own government. That's when the city was laid to siege. We saw this in chapters 1 and 2. So we see the king sent an answer, verse 17, to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who lived in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. So you have the northern kingdom, that's the Samaria area. You have the southern kingdom, you have this Judah and this area in Jerusalem. He says, and he sends greetings. Now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I make a decree, and search has been made. I've looked into the, the history and looked into all of this, and, and I, it's been found that this city from old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been made over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should, you, why should damage grow to hurt of the king? Then... When the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand how to handle the setbacks. God, we ask that you would empower us to lean in a little bit farther this morning, to give us ears to listen a little bit deeper this morning, and give us hearts to embrace the truths that you have for us. We do have an enemy who is not happy about the advances that you're making in our lives that you're making in our friendships and relationships and in our families, the advances that you're making for the gospel in this city. And there most certainly will be setbacks because the enemy isn't happy. But God, help us to see that we don't have to give in to the tactics of the enemy, but we can walk in faith. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? So God has stirred the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus who issued a decree in chapter 1 to send the people back to rebuild the city of God. To rebuild the temple. And so it's something that's important to remember because up until this point, it's been a hip, hip, hooray, we're moving forward. The people have left 70 years of exile that we know was promised to the people in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, 
and they have now experienced the promise of Jeremiah 29.11 come to pass that he is bringing them out of exile and into the place of blessing. But even in the midst of this, what's interesting is from Ezra 1 to the end of Nehemiah, guess how many years it's going to take for the project to be complete? 70 years. It's interesting because all the moments of exile have to be worked out even through difficulty and setbacks so that the people would remain faithful to God. So they move in with a hip, hip, hooray, and we're moving one step forward only to get to chapter four and for it to feel like, wah, wah, wah. Have you ever felt like that? You're making progress in your walk with the Lord. You're making progress in your family and seeing it committed to the house of God only to experience chapter fours in your life. Chapter fours feel like, wah, wah, wah. And we know at the end of this chapter that the work of God's city being rebuilt is going to be 16 years. 16 years of cease and desist. 16 years of discouragement. 16 years of simply looking at what they had begun and not seeing it complete. 16 years of one step forward and 16 steps backwards. This is what they're experiencing. And so we come to this big idea from this passage, and it's this. You can write this down. It's one step forward, two steps back, but God is faithful. One step forward, two steps back, but God is faithful. You see, new beginnings are exciting and filled with hope, but setbacks will always come. Setbacks will always be a reality in our life, but by God's grace, we can turn back and turn to him and experience grace that's fresh, even in the middle of a setback, even in the middle of discouragement. You see, when setbacks come, we can be tempted to believe that following God isn't worth it, and we can settle for spiritual mediocrity. We can settle for some things. And we can actually not see the enemy's attack in our life in a realistic way, and we actually give in to the temptation in the middle of the setback. You see, that's what's happening in Ezra 4. And the lesson for us is this. Whenever you make a commitment to the Lord, you must be prepared to face a setback. Because our enemy is real. He's not ethereal. He's real. And he's not happy when we press into God. So the question is, how do we respond to setbacks and remember that God is faithful? How do we do this? You see, we cannot build, whether it's a church building or further a ministry or our own spiritual lives, without the enemy hearing about it. We can't build this house for God without the enemy hearing about it. We can't build our family on the foundation of God and what he has for us without the enemy hearing about it. We can't build our lives on God and sing praises to him while the enemy is like, la, 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 I don't hear you. So setbacks are a reality, so we have to respond in faithfulness to God. 
And that's what we want to see from our text today. So we have to first recognize, you can write this down, we must recognize the tactics of the enemy. The tactics of the enemy. Yesterday I was at a jiu-jitsu tournament all day with my friends and my son. And he competed, he did a great job, I was proud of him. And I got to compete, uh, I didn't get to compete, but I was, felt like I was competing, supporting my friend, my rolling partner that I practiced with during the week. And uh, it was interesting to just be there and, and not just watch kids do jujitsu, but also watch adults do jujitsu and see the tactics. The tactics, the arm bars and the, and the rear naked chokes and, and, and all of the submission holds and, and all the positions. But all of these things are tactics. But did you know that our enemy has tactics? One of my favorite periods in history is World War II, and one of my favorite characters in all of the World War II era is Winston Churchill. And it's interesting that in the face of the enemy's attacks during World War II, here's what Winston Churchill said. He said, the one thing that ever really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. So there was a battle known as the Battle for the Atlantic, and this was between England and America. And the U-boats were like this unforeseen force that we had never seen before in battle. And Winston Churchill said, I was pretty good with everything except for that. We didn't really have an answer for that. This five-mile stretch in the battle for the Atlantic was where there was no air support. And so it was ship versus U-boat. Tom Hanks depicted this in the film where he was a commanding officer of a ship. The reality is there was seemingly no answer for it, no cover from it, no defense for it. And anyone who has lived any time on this earth understands what it feels like to live in that five miles area. You feel like you have no defense. You feel like you have no answer for it. You feel like you have no ability to defend. This is what it means to experience setbacks because the enemy has tactics and he wants us to give in to these. So if we're not going to give in to them and respond in faith, we need to understand what they are. And so I want to give you some tactics to watch out for from this text. Verse number two in the passage is a tactic of compromise. So these individuals come and they said, hey, let us help you. We worship your God too. But unfortunately, they didn't just just worship Yahweh, they worshiped other gods. And so they wanted to provide syncretism to the beliefs of the people. And so the temptation was, and the tactic was a tactic of compromise. You see, when you experience setbacks, that's the same thing the enemy does to you and me. Compromise. You know, it's really not a big deal if you do this. Really, it's, it's not really all that big a deal because, you know, all you're going through, it's okay if you do this. It's okay if you, you miss a couple weeks at church because, you know, by the way, you've had a hard day. You've had a hard week. You've had a hard couple months. You've had a hard couple years. Maybe you've had a hard couple decades. It's okay. You can miss. The tactic is compromise. And it's the same thing that the people of God experienced here 
in Ezra chapter 4. Immediately following that is discouragement. Verse number 4, it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. Now we don't know what that discouragement looked like. We don't really have to. Because you and I have always experienced that. Right? You start walking with God. You start serving God. You start being committed to the house of God. And then discouragement comes. You'll never be like so-and-so. This project will never get done. God's work in your life will never be finished. So it's compromise, and out of compromise then comes discouragement. So the people of God are discouraged from building the house of God. They're encouraged to stop leaning into the faithfulness of God and start leaning into their own understanding. They're encouraged to stop leaning into God and what he had called them to do and to compromise and get discouraged. You see, Jeremiah 29, 10 through 12 is coming to pass, but the enemy wants them to forget this. That's what he does in our lives. We start experiencing spiritual growth or spiritual uh, renewal in our lives, and what happens is discouragement comes, right? And we forget that he has plans for our life, Jeremiah 29, 11. We forget that those plans are for a hope and a future, and so rather than continuing to lean into the future and what he has for us, we get our eyes on ourselves and we get discouraged. We get our eyes on our own circumstances and we get discouraged. And this is a tactic. Just like the U-boats were a tactic of the enemy, our enemy has some tactics too. And it's compromise and discouragement. Number three, fear. Number three, fear. We see this in this passage, verse 4 and 5. It says, They discouraged the people and made them afraid to build. Made them afraid. How did they make them afraid? I don't know. Maybe they're like, if you start building, I'm going to beat you up. I don't know. Maybe it got like playground, like real quick, you know? I don't know. But it says they were afraid. They made them afraid. You know, the enemy does that to us. He brings fear in our lives. You know what, husband, if you lean into your relationship with your wife and try to lead her spiritually, you know what, she's just going to disregard you and not, and not listen to you and not, not have any respect for you, and he uses fear. Wives, you know, if you, if you lean in and love your husband and pray for him and live faithfully towards me and, and seek me first, seek the the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, your husband's going to leave you and he's not going to love you. Fear. The voice of fear. How about in our workplace? You know what? If you stand up and you proclaim the gospel to your coworkers in a loving, kind, but direct kind of way, you're going to lose your job. The enemy uses fear all the time in our lives. You know what? If you, if you save money and you're generous and you give to the church, you're not going to have enough to pay your bills. You're not going to have enough to buy that new thing that you want. And you're not going to be able to go on that vacation. You see, the enemy even uses generosity in our lives, the thing that God calls us to and says that he will bless. And he twists it and turns it and uses it a fear, a tactic of fear in our lives. And he does the same thing to the people of God here. So we have the tactic of compromise, the tactic of discouragement, the tactic of fear. And then in verse 6, we see accusation. These people are seditious. 
And they are going to rise up against the king and they're never going to pay their tolls. And they're not going to pay their taxes. The accusation. We see this in verse 6 through 23. This parenthetical letter where Ezra shares examples of the opposition that came later. He carefully names names so that his readers would not misunderstand. That this isn't from God, this is accusation from the enemy. You know, this accusation comes to us too. Do you know who you are? You remember who you used to be? You remember those mistakes you made yesterday? You see, the enemy is described as the great accuser. He comes into our lives and accuses us of our past failures, our past sins. And we forget that in the cross of Jesus, He has cleansed us from some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. So when God the Father looks at me and He looks at you, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are seen as righteous. We are seen as holy. We are seen as acceptable. We are seen as righteous and holy before God, filled with grace. And yet the enemy brings his accusations in our lives. He accuses us. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 7, he opposes. You see, the enemy will form coalitions to overwhelm the godly by sheer force of numbers. Scholars think that verse 7 may constitute a letter that we don't have copies of. Whereas the rest of the letter describes what happened. The rest of the chapter. In other words, the enemy won't just use the tactics of opposition and compromise and discouragement and fear and accusation. But you know what? He'll get other people to help him. He'll do that. It might be a family member. It might be a city official. It might be a boss. It might be a manager. It might be a coworker. But the reality is, is it's not them. It's the enemy using them. He'll use people all the time in our life to bring opposition. Because if he can get you off focus, then he can get you off mission. He does this all the time. And then... He uses force. 21 through 24 of the chapter is force. It's the enemy using government edicts and sheer force to block our spiritual advance. We've all experienced this in the last few years, right? It's you can't meet. You can't gather. You have to wear this. We're not, this isn't about like whether masks were good or bad, okay? This is just the reality that the enemy uses tactics to discourage, to separate, to move people apart from celebrating, worshiping, gathering under the teaching of God. And so he'll use all kinds of things. This isn't a message about railing against the government, okay? This is our enemy will use any tactic necessary to keep us from worshiping God and living for him. We need to recognize that, that sometimes he uses force. You see, the result of the opposition in this chapter is that the work of God's house ceased for 16 years. But the study of the Old Testament is important. 
There's some of us who are maybe new Christians or been a Christian for a long time, and you're like, well, the Old Testament is irrelevant. Why are we studying Ezra and Nehemiah? Here's why the Old Testament is so important. Because we look back and see God keeps his promises. From Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, when we step into the New Testament, we see Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise made. And so we need to study the Old Testament because it reminds us as we wait for his return, he keeps every promise. In the midst of our discouragement, he keeps his promises. And so the enemy doesn't want us to see this, so the, the last tactic is countering. I'm going to counter back and forth. I'm going to use every one of these other six to counter what God is doing because he doesn't want to see progress in your life. You see, the enemy does not give up, and he keeps countering. And if he can get you to kick back and give up, he achieves his objective. He achieves his objective. So we need to recognize the tactics of the enemy, but we need to recognize the wrong ways to respond. So we're going to end with some right ways to respond and some right things to do, but there's a lot of us that respond wrongly. Can I get an amen? I got my hand up on that one. I respond wrongly sometimes when compromise, discouragement, fear, accusation, opposition, tactics, force, countering, all of these things come into our lives. See, in the face of all these tactics and attacks, we face the temptation to respond incorrectly. You see, it's Israel's sin that led them to exile. And it's Israel's sin that would keep them in exile. And so we need to understand this because we will be tempted to respond incorrectly. And the first temptation is to give up and go back. To give up and go back. It's just too hard. God must not be in this. It's just too difficult. So, man, we should just shut this thing down. There's not enough financial provision. So you know what we should do? We should just close the bank account, shut it down, and go to a church that's got more finances. It looks like all kinds of things. It looks like giving up and going back. But the prophet Haggai shows us that many of the Jews had gotten distracted and began building their own homes and neglected the building of the house of the Lord in spite of the opposition. So God sends Haggai to the people of Israel to remind them, don't do that. Be faithful to God. Trust God. You know what? The same thing is true in our lives. Things get hard and we give up and we go back to our old life. We experience opposition or maybe setbacks or even discouragement. And so what we do is rather than leaning into God and saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. Man, it feels like 16 years has been a really, really long time. So rather than doing that and leaning in and saying, God, what is it that you're doing? We give up and we go back to our old life. The second temptation is we settle for the second best, settling for second best spirituality. You see, the, the people of God here in Ezra chapter 4 could have simply said this, you know what, at least we're not in Babylon. At, at least there's a foundation laid. But the problem with that is the temple not being rebuilt kept them from experiencing the presence of God. Them not having a temple to worship God kept them from being close to God. So rather than having 
perspective and leaning into what he called them to do, they settled for second best. This is what you and I are tempted with as well as we experience the tactics of the enemy. You know what? At least you went one week. At least you, you went to community group once in, in, or small group in at least once in six months. It's, at least you did something. Rather than really leaning into God time and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to spend time daily with God and pursuing Him and drawing near to Him, at, at least I just read the verse of the day. I know that that's good, and at least you're doing something, but rather than pursuing God, often we settle for second best. And it's a temptation when we experience the tactics of the enemy. You see, without the temple, the Jews could not worship God as they should have. And so we settle often for second best. The third temptation is this. We blame God and others. We blame God and others. We blame God and others because fear is in our lives. Because opposition is in our lives and we're giving in to the tactic. We give in to discouragement and we say, well, maybe God's just not in this. Or maybe it's so-and-so's fault. Or maybe it's this pastor's fault. We experience church hurt. That's a real deal. That's a real thing because pastors are sinners too and sometimes we disappoint people. And so we experience church hurt and so rather than leaning into God and what he's doing in our lives, maybe even through that, we lean away from it and we begin to blame God and others rather than taking responsibility. You see, this is why I believe Paul says in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. He's reminding us that really the enemy is the one that is at attack. He's the one that's using people, plans, places, processes to keep us from pursuing the presence of God. Over and over, he was reminding us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Otherwise, when things go wrong, it's easy to grumble against God, blame God, or against the leaders that God has put over us. You see, our spiritual enemy will vigorously oppose every attempt at spiritual advance. It's one step forward, two steps back. But we have to remember, God is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful? Uh, you don't sound like you believe that God is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful? Amen. God is faithful. So how do we respond? How do we recognize we recognize the tactics of the enemy. We recognize the wrong, way to, wrong, uh, wrong ways to respond, but we recognize the faithfulness of God, and we respond to him. You see, we can begin to believe that defense is the only tactic we have. Defense certainly wins championships, but guess what? You've got to put points on the board. And God has given us some offensive things to do. The first response when we experience setbacks and recognizing the faithfulness of God is to respond to him by not losing our faith, by drawing near to God. Draw near to him. Draw near to him. This is what he calls us to do. You know, in these last six weeks where I've experienced loss and discouragement and even fear, and losing mentors in my life, the only answer for that fear has been drawing near to him. 
The, the only answer to the disappointment of having friends fail me has been leaning into him and drawing near to God. The moments where I didn't do that, you know what? Fear got bigger. Discouragement got larger. Opposition seemed insurmountable. But when we draw near to God, what does the scripture tell us in James? He draws near to us. Before James ever tells us in James chapter 4 to resist the devil, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Before he ever tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us, he says, submit to God. And then he immediately follows that up to draw near to God. Why? Because he knows in the face of opposition and setbacks, that is the answer. The response is to draw near to God. Rather than pulling away from God in the trial, we draw near to him. Why? Because of what 1 Peter 5 says to us, to cast all our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. So if you're facing a setback today, maybe you felt like your last year or two years or 10 years has been a setback. God is calling you and I to not try to do it any longer on our own but to draw near to him draw near to him to cast your anxieties upon him why because he cares for you you see the promises of God for the people of God in Ezra chapter 4 never stop being Jeremiah 29 11 for I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you plans to give you a hope in a future in spite of the opposition that promise never stopped. So we draw near to God. Number two, we recognize the blessings of God through gratitude and worship. Why is it so important that we come to the house of God and we sing his praises? Because it reminds us just how good God is. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if you've experienced a setback, you have every reason to raise your voice louder than anybody else here. Why? Because it's in the worship of God that we experience faith and trust and dependence and reliance and we experience the promises of God right before our very eyes. Think about Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Who wrote this? David, who experienced all kinds of setbacks, who experienced all kinds of opposition, including his own sin, but also external opposition in Saul. And he says, the most important thing I can do in the middle of my setback is bless the Lord through song and worship. So if you're experiencing a setback today, one of the most important things you can do today is what we were doing earlier. As we sing songs to God, lift your hands. It's how you fight. It's how you fight the enemy because he wants to give you fear and make you afraid. And one of the most important things you could do is say, I'm not giving in to that. I'm going to exercise my faith towards God. Response number three. 
Not only do we draw near to God and recognize his blessings through gratitude and worship, lastly, we persevere through the promises of God. Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's a promise. Did you know that God promises if you don't give up and you keep leaning into God in due season, you will reap a harvest. I heard one preacher say it this way. Well, when's the season due? When it's due. When it comes, we don't know. So what do we do? We don't grow weary. We keep leaning into God. We keep trusting Him. We keep drawing near Him. We keep praying for that spouse. We keep praying for that coworker. We keep giving generously. We keep operating in a, the truth that God's promises are real. We keep giving of our time sacrificially to build God's kingdom. Why? Because in spite of the opposition coming, our God is faithful. We keep trusting Him. We keep believing in Him. We keep leaning into Him. We persevere. We persevere. <laughs> I was thinking about this this morning. Yesterday, we were at the jiu-jitsu tournament. I was telling Drew about this. And uh, my rolling partner, he, uh, he's brand new. This is his second competition. And uh, he grabbed a collar and he sidestepped and let the guy fall. But unfortunately, he didn't get out of the way. So the guy fell on top of him. And it's in this moment when you're doing jujitsu that you feel like, man, I'm gonna panic. You got somebody laying on top of you and my rolling partner is about my size. So it's like you got somebody heavy laying on top of you. And it's in this moment where he could have just given up. He could have just tapped. He could have said, you know what, I, I messed up. I started the race wrong. I started the, the battle wrong. And I, I just want to give up. He's facing opposition. And rather than doing that, he responds. He grabbed a collar. He grabbed a collar. And then he grabbed another one. And from the defensive position, he played offense. And he won. He made his opponent submit from a defensive position. I thought about that and I thought you know what that's exactly what God is calling us to do in the midst of our opposition is just persevere persevere and go back to the thing that God has promised to you go back to the truths of what he has taught us and in the middle of opposition rather than giving in lean into faith it was so funny, he made his opponent pass out. That was not funny. That was kind of scary. But he stood up and he's like, it worked. <laughs> he looked at his coach, he was like, it worked. I couldn't believe it worked. And he's like, man, it sure did work. You made that dude pass out. And it was scary there for a minute. 35, 36 year old dude just laying there, passed out for like 45 seconds. But in the middle of that opposition, he went back to what he had learned. He leaned into what he had learned when he wasn't facing opposition and it worked. I want to tell you this morning as we sing, the promises of God always work. They always work. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we want you to hear this. The promises of God work. That if you will give your life to Jesus, 
He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, all you've ever done wrong. His promises are true. His forgiveness is real. It really is that good. God's grace is really that great that he would take you from all of your sin, all of your failure, and make you a child of God. If you're here today and you know Jesus, this is the truth that God has for us too. That we have an enemy who's real. His tactics are pretty nasty. But he's given us ability to respond in faith. To draw near to God. To remember his blessings. And to not give up. Would you stand with us as we sing?